One of the more challenging aspects of creating fictional humans from scratch is figuring out what characters say to each other and how we might learn to make this conversation natural to a character's form, appropriate to the scene, less stilting or strange or robotic, and if we so choose, brave or funny or witty or terse or wild. At today's 11th hour lecture, we're excited to welcome Kelly Dwyer, who will share tips for talking and ways in which we might create a dialogue that draws a reader close. Kelly Dwyer is the author of two children's books, as well as two novels, The Traps of Angels and Self-Portrait with Ghosts. She's currently teaching creative writing and doing freelance editing while she finishes her third novel, A Psychological Ghost Story, set in Wisconsin. So please join me in welcoming Kelly Dwyer. there. Um, Better talky-talky, I mentioned in the intro that apparently when agents and editors get manuscripts, if they like the first page, they switch to dialogue. They flip the pages until they find dialogue. And if the dialogue is good, they keep reading. And uh, if it isn't, the manuscript ends right there. I think readers do a little bit of the same thing. I know I'm still kind of in third grade going to the school library, picking out a book and looking for some white space, some dialogue, um, unless I'm in the mood for pure exposition, which is rare. Um, So editors and agents look for good dialogue, readers look for good dialogue, and it helps to create a powerful work. It's difficult to think of a great story or novel or a memoir or other creative nonfiction work without dialogue. And of course, it's pretty much all you have to work with in playwriting and screenwriting. And even in poetry, some well-placed dialogue can create meaning and power. So I'm curious. We've established the importance. I'm curious about why you're here. What's so hard about writing good dialogue? Anyone want to answer that? What's hard? Yes? Keeping your voices straight. The character's voices straight. Thank you. Yes? Making it sound natural. Making it sound natural. Okay. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, We'll talk about some of those uh, things as we go along. Um, I am going to use the T word here. Some people seem to be naturally talented at dialogue. Um, But the good news is that if you're not, or if you think you're not, I know some people think they're not, and I think they are, um, there are ways to improve. So a few ways to improve your dialogue. Number one, listen. It's called a good ear for dialogue, not a good mouth for dialogue. So listen to how all kinds of people speak, and go to different types of places and listen. Um... The people at the dollar store in Coralville probably speak differently than the people in the uh, philosophy department on campus. You're limiting yourself and inspiration for your characters if you only surround yourself with people exactly like you. 
who speak exactly like you do. I read somewhere that uh, a writer watches reality TV for this reason, so if you want to watch The Bachelor, you can tell yourself you're doing research, um, <laughs> listening to how people speak. And Quentin Tarantino says, I was kind of excited about going to jail for the first time, and I learned some great dialogue there. <laughs> so uh, I think that probably, given uh, Tarantino's themes, probably came in handy for him. I, I'm, I'm not sure I would enjoy it quite so much, but the point is to make use of every opportunity to learn and listen to dialogue. Another good way to improve your dialogue is to read it aloud. Um, it surprises me how many good writers skip this step. Sometimes I'm working with a writer and I'll ask her to read her scene aloud and immediately she starts speaking in contractions that aren't on the page. Um, so you should be able to fix those issues before another reader even reads them. Connected to this, have someone else read your dialogue aloud for you and listen to it. If you've written, I am ready to go, um, that's how your reader should read it. And then you can hear that, and depending on the character, you might want to rewrite it to, I'm ready. So read it aloud, and maybe have someone else read it aloud for you. Of course, note good dialogue, and maybe bad in your reading. Uh, what makes it good or bad? Noticing it in others' work is a good habit to get into to notice it in yours. Uh, those are tips I have for getting better at writing dialogue in a general way. Before we go on, anything that's helped anyone in particular get better at dialogue you might want to share with us? Yes? To avoid saying he says, she says, and try to and have an okay. use a stronger verb. He insisted, he agreed, he committed. Okay, I'm going to talk about that later. So I'm going to come back to that and we, we might... Uh, we might be able to explore that a little bit later, but uh, anything else that's helped you improve? Yes? Well, for one thing, I think there's disagreement on that. There are some authors who only use said, and then there are other authors who try and avoid using he said or he agreed or anything. Yeah, yeah, there are ways to do that. So, yeah, we'll definitely but, uh, talk about that. Another pointer, I think, is to eschew the use of adverbs as in, he said nasty. Right. Although people who write genre fiction sometimes insist that you do have to use it okay. in certain genres. Okay, thank you. Um, what's the point of dialogue? To really be able to discuss what makes it good, we need to define what it does, and yet it's hard to discuss its purpose without using good dialogue as examples. So I'm really going to be discussing these two things simultaneously. What's the purpose of dialogue, and how do we write it better? The main purpose of dialogue is to move the story forward. Sounds obvious, but sometimes it isn't. The main purpose is to move the story forward. I'm going to talk about a lot of other things that good dialogue does, but if it's not moving the story forward, there's no point in keeping it. For example, a good scene with good dialogue can help set uh, the setting, can help create a setting. But if all you want to do is set a scene, you can do that in exposition. Uh, it needs to be moving the story forward while it's doing all these other things. Connected to that, if all you want to do is move the story forward, you could also probably narrate that if you had to in exposition. So dialogue is tricky 
partly because it needs to be doing more than one thing to be good. Um, I'm going to give you a list of things it should do besides move the story forward, um, and then I'll ask if you have any others to add. But basically, if your dialogue isn't moving the story forward and doing one or two of these other things, it's not working hard enough. So here's my list. In addition to moving the story forward, good dialogue helps to create this setting, as I just mentioned. And I'm going to read uh, Beat the Rapper from Josh Bazell. And this is on page four, so very early on in the story. In the elevator up to medicine, there's a small blonde drug rep in a black party dress with a roller bag. She's got a flat chest, and the arch of her back boosts her ass, so she's shaped like a sexy, slender kidney bean. She's 26 after a bit too much sun exposure, and her nose is the kind that looks like a nose job but isn't. Freckles, I shit you not. Her teeth are the cleanest things in the hospital. Hi, she says like she's from Oklahoma. Do I know you? Not yet, no, I say, thinking, because you're new on this job or you wouldn't have such shitty hours. Are you an orderly, she asks. I'm an intern in internal medicine. An intern is a first-year resident, one year out of medical school, so typically about six years younger than I am. I don't know what an orderly is. It sounds like someone who works in an insane asylum, if there are still insane asylums. Wow, the drug rep says, you're cute for a doctor. If by cute she means brutal and stupid looking, which in my experience most women do, she's right. My scrub shirt is so tight you can see the tattoos on my shoulders, snake staff on the left, star of David on the right. You're from Oklahoma, I ask her. Well, yes, I am. You're 22? I wish, 24. You took a couple of years off. Yes, but oh my God, that is a boring story. It's okay so far. What's your name? Stacy, she says, stepping closer with her arms behind her back. I should say here that being chronically sleep-deprived is so demonstrably similar to being drunk that hospitals often feel like giant, ceaseless office Christmas parties, except that at a Christmas party, the schmuck standing next to you isn't about to fillet your pancreas with something called a hot knife. I should also maybe say that drug reps, of whom there is one for every seven physicians in the United States, get paid to be flirtatious. What company do you work for, I ask. Martin Whiting Aldamid, she says. Got any moxfane? Moxfane is the drug they give to bomber pilots who need to take off from Michigan, bomb Iraq, then fly back to Michigan without stopping. You can swallow it or use it to run the engine. Well, yes, I do, but what are you going to give me in return? What do you want, I say. She's right up under me. What do I want? If I start thinking about that, I'll start crying. Don't tell me you want to see that. Beat's going to work. She gives me the play slap and leans over to unzip her bag. If she's wearing underwear, it's not of any technology I'm familiar with. <laughs> anyway, she says, it's just things like a career or not having three roommates or not having parents who think I should have stayed in Oklahoma. I don't know that you can help me with that. She stands up with a sample pack of moxfane and a pair of dermagels, the Martin Whiting Aldeman $18 rubber gloves. She says, in the meantime, I might settle for showing you our new gloves. I've tried them, I say. Have you ever tried kissing someone through them? No, neither have I, and I've kind of been dying to. She hip-checks the elevator stop button. Oop, she says. She bites the cuff off of one of the gloves to tear it open, and I laugh. You know that feeling where you're not sure whether you're being hustled or in the presence of an actual human being? I love that feeling. 
So this is very close to the beginning. Um, we set the scene. Can anyone mention what else that informed you of or what else that scene is doing? Definitely reveals character. So we have a sense of both his minor character, the drug grep, and the narrator, who's obviously the main character. Anything else, Sarah? There's such a great balance between the, what's spoken and the internal dialogue, whether yeah. it's like to explain something to the reader or his thoughts about the drug rep. It's, it's a great uh, counterplay between those yeah. two. Yeah, yeah. So you learn so much. Thank you. Yeah, what he doesn't say and we get in narration and what she doesn't say and we just never get. It's just unsaid because we're not in her thoughts. Is she manipulating him or a real human being? We don't know, just like he doesn't know. So there's a lot unsaid, too. Um, I think it depends somewhat, you know, on the character. This one in Beat the Reaper, it's, for me, a real voice novel. You know, it's partly about, I don't care if what happens. I'm just along for the ride of this voice and this consciousness. So I think um, when you have such a strong voice, we're so interested. Everything he thinks is so interesting. This isn't what we, our, our uh, stereotype of a, uh, first-year medical intern that I think he gets away with adding a little more um, internal thought than maybe uh, someone would who's not writing such a strong voice story. Um, Sometimes he uses it to convey information, and sometimes it's just to deepen the scene. For example, he says she's 26. He's a doctor, so he knows how old everyone is. Uh, But then he says, so what are you, 22? We know he knows she's 26, but this way we get to see her lie. So that's kind of an interesting thing he does with the internal dialogue. And then, of course, there's that you know punch at the ending. So I guess I don't have an easy answer for that. Um, I would say it's better not really um, to use it just to give us long information, but if your character is thinking these interesting thoughts, it's, it's fun to read, right? Yes. If yeah. one wanted to convey a character, it's impossible for the character to be conveyed with dialogue in a much more subtle and compressed way. I think so. I mean, this is at the beginning. So we're kind of figuring out who he is and where he is. I, I'm trying to remember, but I think this might be the first time we know um, he works in a hospital. So it's only page four, and the opening scene, I think, is his getting beat up by a drug dealer. So really he's setting the scene, and I think that it would be too long if it were on page 100, say. Um, but I like that idea of trying to, you know, trying to compress. That's a good tip for all of us for our dialogue. Uh, another, so moving the story forward, setting the scene... Creating character, people have mentioned. Um, Good dialogue can create tension and conflict. So here's a scene from Richard Wright's autobiographical novel, Black Boy. Mama, I'm hungry, I complained one afternoon. Jump up and catch a kungri, she said, trying to make me laugh and forget. What's a kungri? It's what little boys eat when they get hungry, she said. What does it taste like? 
I don't know. Then why did you tell me to catch one? Because you said that you were hungry, she said, smiling. I sensed that she was teasing me, and it made me angry. But I'm hungry. I want to eat. You'll have to wait. But I want to eat now. But there's nothing to eat, she told me. Why? Just because there's none, she explained. But I want to eat, I said, beginning to cry. You'll just have to wait, she said again. But why? For God to send some food. When is he going to send it? I don't know. She was hungry, uh, sorry, she was ironing, and she paused and looked at me with tears in her eyes. Where's your father, she asked me. I stared in bewilderment. Yes, it was true that my father had not come home to sleep for many days now, and I could make as much noise as I wanted. Though I had not known why he was absent, I in bed glad that he was not there to shout his restrictions at me. But it had never occurred to me that his absence would mean that there would be no food. I don't know, I said. Who brings food into the house, my mother asked me. Papa, I said. He always brought food. Well, your father isn't here now, she said. Where is he? I don't know, she said. But I'm hungry, I whimpered, stomping my feet. You'll have to wait until I get a job and buy food, she said. As the day slid past, the image of my father became associated with my pangs of hunger, and whenever I felt hunger, I thought of him with a deep biological bitterness. Uh, so we're, this is the first time uh, we know in the story that there's no food, that the father's left, that he's hungry. So a lot of tension and conflict created in that pretty short scene. Anything else anyone notices that that scene is doing? Yeah. Good. So we can, uh, Laura said, it gives an age to the characters. So we know the mother is the mother, and we know the young boy is quite young. He keeps repeating, but I'm hungry. Yes. Yes. She's, we know right away she's trying to tease him out of it, a hungry. Um, so she's trying to make things better by showing her sense of humor. Anything else? Okay. Um, the other thing I'll just mention, and this gets to your question, um, we're always told to show, don't tell, but I think uh, good writers show and tell, and often it's nice to be told after we're shown. So here we have this scene um, in which we're shown all of this, and then write writes, I thought of him with a deep biological bitterness. And I think if he had just written that in exposition without the dialogue, it would not be nearly as powerful. Uh, it, we wouldn't have any context. We're shown his hunger, we're shown his resentment, and then we're told how he feels about his dad. So showing and telling. Um, you mentioned humor. We can inject humor while moving the plot forward. There's a very short excerpt from Lori Moore. Do you feel all right? asked Scarp, looking suddenly concerned. Fine. It's just I quit smoking. Suddenly there's all this air in my lungs. What's a cute meat? M-E-A-T. Cute meat? M-E-E-T. It's Hollywood for where two lovers meet and fall in love. Oh, said Harry. I think I liked myself better before I knew that. Scarp laughed. You writers, he said, downing his martini. We writers, I should say. By the way, I have to tell you, I've ripped you off mercilessly. Uh, so there's humor, we're laughing, and yet, talk about moving the story forward. This is when one character tells the other, basically, that he plagiarized from him and made a lot of money doing so. 
Uh, so it, we're, we don't know that, but, but we know we want to read further and see what happens next. Questions, comments? Yeah? Just one comment. The author has that fellow making a short remark, comment down in his martini. Good, I yeah. Hope that, I hope that this guy can simply plead ignorance of martinis because you don't down the martini. Take it from an experienced martini. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, and... Um, that he was, there was a little, but we don't know, so maybe the writer didn't show us this well enough, but I thought there would be a little bit left in the glass and he would down it to give himself strength to tell his good friend that he had just made a lot of money on his idea. I don't know. Oh, sure, sorry. Um, it was less a question than a statement. He uh, admitted to being an experienced martini drinker and said, you don't down it. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, I imagine there was a little bit. Maybe it would be stronger if we knew that. I don't know. But, yeah. Uh, giving himself courage to tell his friend that he's ripped him off. Here's another example of a scene that really moves the plot forward. At the beginning of this scene, they're just sitting around the table, and at the end, you'll see what happens. This is from Raymond Carver. Ray said, tell him, Mom, tell him what we talked about. LD turned the glass in his hand, but he didn't drink from it. Maxine had him in a fierce and disquieting gaze. Keep your nose out of things you don't know anything about, L.D. said. I can't take anybody seriously who sits around all day reading astrology magazines. This has nothing to do with astrology, Ray said. You don't have to insult me. As for Ray, she hadn't been for, to school for weeks. She said no one could make her go. Maxine said it was another tragedy in a long line of low-rent tragedies. Why don't you both shut up, Maxine said. My God, I already have a headache. Tell him, Mom, Ray said. Tell him it's all in his head. Anybody who knows anything about it will tell you that's where it is. How about sugar diabetes, LD said. What about epilepsy? Can the brain control that? He raised his glass right under Maxine's eyes and finished his drink. Diabetes too, Ray said. Epilepsy, anything. The brain is the most powerful organ in the body for your information. She picked up his cigarettes and lit one for herself. Cancer. What about cancer, L.D. said. He thought he might have her there. He looked at Maxine. I don't know how we got started on this, L.D. said to Maxine. Cancer, Ray said, and shook her head at his simplicity. Cancer, too. Cancer starts in the brain. That's crazy, L.D. said. He hit the table with the flat of his hand. The ashtray jumped. His glass fell on its side and rolled off. You're crazy, Ray. Do you know that? Shut up, Maxine said. She unbuttoned her coat and put her purse down on the counter. She looked at LD and said, LD, I've had it. So is Ray. So is everyone who knows you. I've been thinking it over. I want you out of here. Tonight. This minute. Now. Get the hell out of here right now. Uh, Sarah mentioned about omission before, and one thing I really like about this scene is while it's moving the plot forward, I mean, at the beginning they're just talking, and at the end LD has to leave, um, it's really a scene of omission in which all of the tension is created by what people aren't saying. And the only reminder we have of that is the glass. 
So uh, using this glass as not drinking from it, then drinking from it, then it rolls off the table as a sort of a object, a visual object or symbol of what the real problem is, even though they're fighting over whether illness occurs in the brain or not. Anything else people notice from that? Uh, that's f- uh, from the book where I'm calling from. Short excerpt to show dialogue can speed up the pace. So sometimes people think it slows down because you have to dramatize everything, but it really can speed up the pace. Uh, this is a short excerpt from Michael Cunningham's story, White Angel, in which a mother and son are talking about the boy's brother. Where's Carlton, she asks. Don't know, I tell her. Bobby, huh. What exactly is going on? Nothing, I say. My heart works itself up to a hummingbird's rate, more buzz than beat. I think something is. Will you answer a question? Okay. Is your brother taking drugs? I relax a bit. It's only drugs. I know why she's asking. Lately, police cars have been browsing our house like sharks. They pause, take note, glide on. Some neighborhood crackdown. Carlton is famous in these parts. No, I tell her. So if it's only drugs, then what's the bad part? <laughs> what's worse than a teenager taking drugs? We want to read the story to find out. So it definitely speeds up the pace. Anything else people notice from that? Again, there's that don't know or okay or no. So just the way a young boy would talk. Um, Dialogue can create mood. Dialogue in Raymond Chandler is different than dialogue in Jane Austen, and the mood of the books are different. Um, The dialogue is part of the atmosphere and mood, and I know you didn't believe me when I uh, told you that it can be used also to add power to poetry, so I'm going to give you an example here. Uh, This is uh, Bird Watching at Night, a few first few lines by Sherman Alexie a poem called Bird Watching at Night. What kind of bird is that? An owl. What kind of bird was that? Another owl. Oh, that one was too quick and small to be an owl. What was it? A quick and small owl. <laughs> so, uh, it can also be used in, in poetry and helps create um, mood. And, Anyone here? We have, did only fiction writers come, or do we have any poets here, poetry writers here? Have you ever used dialogue in your poems? Good. You get that speaker speaking, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, nice. Because here we have the two characters arguing, and it's quite funny, another owl. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, While moving the story forward, dialogue can also um, further the theme. And uh, this is from, do you know the book Mistress of Spices by um, Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni? She wrote another book called uh, Sister of My Heart, and this is an excerpt from that. Um, I think I might skip around a little because it's a little long and I want us to have a little writing time. Um, But what Anne says next makes me feel as though someone's dropped me into a cold, dark well. 
I've also decided on an early marriage for her. As soon as she's finished at the convent, I'll start looking for a suitable boy. But she wouldn't even be 18, says mother, from somewhere above me, her voice echoing with shock. That's much too young. If she's old enough to fool around with men in movie houses, aunt says, she's old enough to care for her husband's family. It's hard to speak from under layers and layers of freezing water, but finally I manage. What about college? Isn't Suda going to go to college? What good is that going to do, says aunt? It'll just put more wayward ideas into her head. Instead, I'll have a lady teacher come to the house to give her cooking lessons. I'm only letting her finish school out of respect to your mother, who's put so much of her money into it. She inclines her head at my mother as though she's doing her a favor. I'll skip ahead a little, and then uh, the two girls, the two cousins, are walking up the stairs. Don't worry, this isn't over yet, I whisper. We'll fight it every way we can think of. Already I'm devising strategies, things I'm going to say to Mother, who I sense is on our side. And no matter what happens, it'll happen to us both together, I promise. I wait for Suda to agree, but instead she draws back a little and looks at me with a slight ironic smile, as though she knows already what it'll take me years to figure out. Promises may be fulfilled, yes, but not always in the way we imagine. Oh, that line of dialogue, it'll happen to us both together, I promise, really helps develop the theme that one of the two girls really has uh, no sense of what's going to bring them apart. Uh, Saving the most important one for last, I think, uh, we've talked about this, but as well as moving the plot forward, good dialogue develops character. Um, and I think we've seen the character develop in all of these, uh, so I think I'll skip reading uh, what I was going to read. I had a young adult book with me by E. Lockhart, Drama Rama, and I really enjoy young adult uh, books that have good dialogue in them because that can be a challenge but uh, E. Lockhart writes dialogue very well so if you're writing young adult books you may want to look at those but in all of these really we've seen how uh, the dialogue really furthers the character so dialogue should not do only one of these things if it's not doing two or three of them you should work on it till it's working harder or cut it in my second novel, I had a scene I really liked. It was a back, a sort of a flashback of uh, the main character's uh, boyfriend uh, or love interest having cut down a tree due to plumbing problems, and I felt like it was uh, really showed a nice rapport between them. But when I was editing my book, I asked myself if I could cut any scene and would the story still be moving forward. And I felt like mm, I could cut this scene and the story would still be moving forward. So I asked myself, well, what is it doing? Well, it's developing character, furthering the theme, but is it doing it in any new way that the reader hasn't seen before? And I thought, no, it's just affirming what we already know. So I realized that I could cut it to no loss to the book. Um, James Salter, uh, one of my teachers here at Iowa, said, the uh, mark of a good novel is how many pages are in the wastebasket. And I think that was an example of that. The scene itself was, in, in my mind, good. It was, uh, it didn't make me cringe, you know. It was uh, uh, well written in my mind, but it, it wouldn't help make my novel more cohesive or better, so it, it ended up deleted. Um, 
There's one thing dialogue uh, should not be used for in terms of purpose, and that's to uh, convey information. So uh, there's uh, Hitchcock says this dialogue should not be used to convey information, and I always think, well, if Hitchcock says this as a filmmaker, then surely we, as fiction writers who have narrators, have no excuse. And I think of his opening scene in Rear Window, um, where we're we're shown the wall of uh, uh, race car photographs, and then we're shown Jimmy Stewart in a cast with a camera next to him. And just that uh, visual scene tells us He's a sports photographer who hurt himself uh, filming a, uh, a race car event. Grace Kelly comes in, and she doesn't need to say, Oh, Jimmy Stewart, how are you doing after that terrible crash in which you were photographing the Daytona 500 and broke your leg? She doesn't need to do that because we've been shown it. So uh, I don't know if there are any screenwriters or, or playwriters in here, but... You know, our job as playwrights or screenwriters is a lot harder. In college, I took a playwriting class to uh, get my dialogue better. I really enjoyed it and continued to write plays. But when I went back to writing a story, I thought, this is so easy. I have a narrator that can explain things in exposition and think things in exposition. And not everything needs to be in dialogue. So we have that uh, tool as fiction writers, so we don't need to um, to use dialogue to convey information. Any um, questions or comments before we go on about dialogue's purpose? Okay. Practical elements regarding dialogue. It's the last thing I'll talk about before we do a little writing. Um, so you two have already mentioned the set. I had no idea this was going to be so controversial, but uh, I, I guess I'm in the said camp. I feel like uh, said and asked are almost like seeing a period at the end of a sentence, and we really don't feel those words very, um, very deeply. So I don't. Uh, recommend varying said to exhorted or exclaimed or yelled or cried. I think we can do it in another way, but just he said, she said, I don't, it would be rare if you were annoyed by that, I think, in fiction. It would, it would be rare. Usually we just read right over it. And I feel like exhorted, cried, exclaimed, um, uh, is a little bit like using the, the adverbs where we're trying to show something in a word that should be shown in the dialogue. Garcia Marquez uh, said he had used three adverbs in one of his books and then used zero in the next one. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's pretty good. We don't leave Marquez's books feeling like we don't understand what anyone is feeling. So really we should try to use adverbs Rarely, I, I try to avoid them because they always sound to me like um, Tom Swifties. I need a pencil sharpener, said Tom bluntly. It's not fair, said Tom darkly. You know, they always seem like Tom Swifties to me. So um, I, I try and avoid them for that. And also because that's fantastic news, he said happily. 
Don't let one advert do your work for you. If you haven't shown the character is happy, you haven't worked hard enough. You need to show that in the scene, either uh, through his or her gestures or through his or her words in the dialogue. So I think it's a little bit lazy writing to rely on exclaimed or said happily. Um, uh, that's my opinion. Now, one way uh, to get away from he said, she said too often is uh, to make each character sound different. So, uh, for example, if I'm writing about a group of uh, University of Iowa faculty members, they might all be educated academics, but what if one is from Sri Lanka, another is from Georgia, one moonlights as a rapper poet, one is a scientist. If I make decent character sketches, even write scenes in their point of view, I'll know their voices better. And I'll just use an example from Catherine Mansfield. A very few dialogue tags because the voices are so different. Uh, the bell rang. It was lean, pale Eddie Warren, as usual, in a state of acute distress. It is the right house, isn't it? Oh, I think so. I hope so, said Bertha. I have had such a dreadful experience with a taxi man. He was most sinister. I couldn't get him to stop. The more I knocked and called, the faster he went. And in the moonlight, this bizarre figure with a flattened head crouching over the little wheel, he shuddered, taking off an immense white silk scarf. Bertha noticed his socks were white too, most charming. But how dreadful. Yes, it really was, said Eddie, following in her into the drawing room. I saw myself driving through eternity in a timeless taxi. He knew the Norman Knights. In fact, he was going to write a play for Norman when the theater scheme came off. Well, Warren, how's the place at... Well, Warren, how's the place, said Norman Knight, dropping his monocle and giving his eye a moment in which to rise to the surface before it was screwed down again. So very few dialogue tags there because their voices are so different. The other way uh, you can avoid too many he said, she said is by using gestures. And uh, we've seen a few of those here. I lost. Uh, well, for example, in the Raymond Carver, we don't need to always say LD said at one point, LD sipped from his glass. So it's hard for you to remember this visually, but you know, every speaker has a new paragraph. And if the speaker is gesturing, then that is in the same paragraph that the speaker is speaking. So it will be very clear instead of LD said raising his glass, well, why not just take advantage of that opportunity, get rid of the said, and say period, end quote, LD raised his glass. So that's another way to avoid too many of those. Um, having different... Uh, Character voices is, uh, is important, but I just want to remind you that not all characters are completely articulate all the time. So not saying what we're thinking or trying to say something but not be able to, we've seen that as a part of dialogue and character too. Make sure your dialogue mirrors how people speak, and that means you know plenty of contractions. I'm amazed by my college students who speak in broken sentences, slang, interesting words and sentences, and then they go to write dialogue and they say, I will not do that, when in real life they would say, I won't do that, or I'm not going to do that, or even just, dude. And <laughs> why not just write, dude? So uh, note that, uh, you know, really try and write how 
people speak, this is a time when you don't need to be grammatically correct. You can use slang, but remember, um, dialogue isn't a recording of a conversation. It has focus. As Nathan Bransford says, good dialogue is an escalation. The last bit of practical advice I'll leave you with, Frank Conroy gave us here at Iowa, and he said in your writing... Uh, you have three exclamation points in your life, so use them sparingly. Uh, I may have gone over that limit, I don't know, but uh, it really does help keep that in mind to use it sparingly. It's just so loud on the page, and I feel like so often it's more powerful to have a period, to be understated than use exclamation points. Uh, so I thought we'd move on to a little writing exercise. Uh, maybe we'll just write for a few minutes and share if, if people want to. Um, our exercise, like good dialogue, is about doing a couple of things at once. I have run exercise I like to call, are we on a battlefield or in a beauty parlor? Because sometimes I read scenes and they're just in heaven or something. I have no idea where they are. We could be on a battlefield or in a beauty parlor. There's just no setting at all. So while you're doing this, set a scene. Use action and gestures. For example, maybe someone is cutting someone's hair in a beauty parlor, or maybe some two people are talking in a foxhole, or maybe they're changing a tire or washing and drying the dishes. The context is I'd like for one of the characters to have a secret from the other, again, using omission as part of telling our story and just trying to take everything you've learned and put it into a little paragraph. Can one person have a secret from another person? It could be revealed or not in a scene, and maybe we can write until 10 till and then share one or two.
We'll just take another minute or two to finish up. Anyone want to share? You might have to come down here. I'll hold the microphone for you. <laughs> you look like you've got a lot written. No? <laughs> You're going to share? Sure. Okay. You want to come here? I don't mean to say Leah's not a nice girl, said Gail, as she poured soap powder into the dishwasher. Just that you seem to spend so much time with her. Don't you see Rafe anymore? Christine was focusing on a spot of gravy on the kitchen counter, trying to scrape it off with the scouring pad. Not as much, she replied, not looking at her mother. We're kind of outgrowing each other, you know? Really? He's such a nice boy. But maybe it's just as well that you don't get too attached at your age. Any other boys you have your eye on? Gail started the dishwasher. Gail shut the dishwasher and started it. Oh, here and there. It's hard to find boys who are mature enough for me. Great, thank you. It's hard to read in front of people. I brought you a caramel. <laughs> you want to come down one more? You're just doing that to get your prize, aren't you? <laughs> Can you make a caramel without gluten? I don't know. I don't know okay. either. This is short. She stood there, hands on hips, lips pursed as only Isabel can purse, waiting for her youngest to finish his rant. God damn it, John, why do you always have to have the last word? Okay, Mom, you can have it. Slap. <laughs> Sally, these are great. Thank you. I'll hold it for you. Uh, uh, excuse me, ma'am. In this paper bag, I have a gun. I really don't want to use it. It's noisy, and it would upset all these people. So if you would just quietly empty the cash from your drawer into that envelope and slide it toward me. Sir, I know you. You come in here a lot. You have that darling little boy with you sometimes, don't you? You really don't want to do this now, do you? Ma'am, this is a bad time to have this conversation. <laughs> Maybe we could have coffee sometime. But right now, you see, I really need you to put some money in that envelope, okay? It doesn't even have to be all the money in the drawer, but I had a terrible couple of nights at the poker table, and these guys are really, well, they're, yes, sir, I, I totally understand, I do, but if you got caught with that gun, I mean, that might be, well, uh, I really don't have a gun in the uh, bag. <laughs> You're sorry. Thank you. <laughs> all right, I think we'll end it there. Thank you so much, and good luck with your writing.